0: Let's turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to deal here in the next couple of weeks with the persecution and the condemnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And because we've been away from the Gospel of John for a little while, uh, I'm going to bring us up up to date with where we are. But I want to read this passage because this is where we're going to end up studying this this morning, what we're going to end up studying this morning.
1: and We know already that Jesus has been taken and arrested and,
0: and mistreated and uh, uh, He's been actually uh, tried falsely and uh, uh, so on and so forth and brought before Pilate which is where we left off back in chapter 18. And I'm going to cover some of that here in just a moment. But let's just read here in verses 1 through 3, where it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Now I'm going to get us caught up to this point. Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns. In other words, they took thorns and they, they formed it into a crown. They put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail king of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Now, there were three actions. We'll call them either actions or movements, but there were three actions that Pontius Pilate took before the events of this chapter, before we came to verse 1. The first action that he took was toward the accusers of Jesus to hear their charges against him. That will take us back to verse 28 of the previous chapter. So just go back a page to verse 28 and we'll begin reading there to get caught up to where we are. But in John 18 verse 28 it says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the high priest, unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. That, if you remember, was a hypocritical move on their part. They didn't want to be defiled, so they didn't enter into the Roman judgment hall. Yet what were they doing? They they were uh, falsely accusing Jesus. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. And then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Of course that would take him to the cross, the Roman cross. Now of course it was such an insolent rude and disrespectful charge filled with hatred and pride reflecting their complete rejection of the one prophesied in their own holy scriptures as the person despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as it is written in Isaiah 53. Pilate, though, in his own inimitable way, did what he could to evade his responsibility. Much of what we are going to hear about today has to do with Pilate's heart. And I know we've talked about him before. But notice what Pilate is doing gone to the people. His second action now, his second move was now toward Jesus to hear his defense. Verse 33, and then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, sayest thou this thing of thyself or did others tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? (coughs) Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all." Now what Jesus was doing in this little section, when Pilate comes to him, is that he was challenging Pilate to think through the issues at hand. Think through the issues at hand. That is really what the Lord Jesus does through his word to all of us. He wants us to think through the issues. We live in a society in our country today, when you look at what's happening politically in this country right now, especially this past week, we have a lot of people that are not thinking through any issues. They've made up their minds. And what that has brought about is chaos and anarchy. What Jesus wants us to do is to think through the issues at hand and it is a reminder to us that when we or anyone judges Jesus each person is responsible for their own verdict the fact of the matter is each and every one of us in this room judges Jesus each one of us judges the Lord but here is how we do it either he is or he isn't the King of kings and the Lord of lords Either we confess him as that, that's our verdict, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, or we say that he isn't. Either he is the only begotten Son of God or he isn't. Either he is the creator of the heavens and the earth or he isn't. We are making that judgment each and every one of us. And we're responsible for what we believe or not believe. And so he tells Pilate, think through everything. So what was his response? What is truth? That's the question, though it may not be asked, Verbally, it is asked in the minds of so many people today. They have been so tempered by the philosophies of the, of the world, the vain philosophies of the world, to think that there is no absolute truth. But Jesus was all about absolute truth. And now... Pilate's third action was back to the people. It's like a tennis ball, going back and forth, back and forth. What is that going to describe for us of his own thoughts and of his own heart? Verse 38, once again, just the last part of that verse. He went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find him in no fault at all. Time and time again, and even in all the gospels, we see him say this. I find in him, in Jesus, no fault at all. But then he says this to the Jewish religious leaders and to the people. He says, but you have a custom that I should release unto you one one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Now take note of what he says about Jesus. He doesn't say to them, will you therefore that I release unto you the one who says he's the king of the Jews? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Now, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, what is he thinking here? Is he trying to get under their skin still? Because they don't accept Jesus as their king. Or is he stating fact? Then cried they all again. By that very statement, this is what they cry. They all cry again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now for some reason, Pilate wanted to avoid a confrontation with the Jews, seemingly as much as he wanted to avoid a confrontation with Jesus. But here he was, in the midst of this whole issue, brought to him. And so he asks... A scandalous, outrageous question. He says, but you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Well, this was an offer to release Jesus on the basis of a custom rather than on uh, on the established basis of his innocence. Remember what he kept saying? I find in him no fault at all. By the very fact that Pilate called Jesus the King of the Jews, it just annoyed the religious people and their puppets to violent opposition. They rejected the offer vehemently, choosing to release an infamous, vicious thief and insurrectionist and murderer, by the way, over the Prince of Peace, over the Messiah of Israel, over the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. They rejected the path of true everlasting peace for a temporal and incomplete worldly peace. They felt that they could be at peace if Jesus wasn't around. Do you know that that wasn't just a thought 2,000 years ago? That's the thought of today. If they can just get rid of this person named Jesus and anything that's mentioned of him, we can get world peace. Why do you think that the church is attacked the way it is? Not just by some worldly religions. Not not just by, 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 by other particular philosophies. Primarily the world. The world system. The cosmos. As God has stated, it would happen. As Jesus himself stated, it would happen. As the prophets stated, it would happen. As the apostles stated, it would happen. let me ask you a question has there ever been or will there ever be that sort of peace in our time no there cannot be if Jesus is not at the center of it because he is indeed the Prince of Peace is that not we what we read there in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, or the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There could be no true peace without the Prince of Peace. But man thinks that they can have peace. Let me me just read to you Isaiah 48, verse 22. Isaiah 48, verse 22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Now, we would say that's pretty clear. That those who do not believe in Christ, those who do not believe in the Lord, those who have no desire whatsoever to follow after Christ, or to follow after the Word of God or to follow after God Himself and His Word and His truth and His Messiah. There is no peace. Let me just ask you a quick personal question, those of you that have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. On the day that you received Him, on the day that you wept because of, of, of that repentant heart that you, that you brought to Him, that you cried out because you realized that you were a sinner, that you were a sinner who had, who had committed cosmic treason against God and against the Lord. That on that day that you confessed your sins and he was so faithful and just to forgive you because you received the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you received the understanding of what the cross meant. And what Jesus did on that cross and what that meant and what it meant that he died for our sins and was buried and three days later he rose again from the dead and what that meant was there not a peace that settled in your hearts that wasn't a peace of this world it wasn't a peace of mankind it was a peace that could only come from heaven it was a peace that could only come from the creator of the heavens and the earth It was a peace that could only come through Jesus Christ. No matter what kind of chaos surrounded us here, there was peace. The wicked person we were has been cleansed, has been healed, has been changed. And now there's peace. In Isaiah 59, verse 8, After the Lord speaks of those whose, whose ears were heavy and could not hear, or, or I should say the Lord's ear was heavy that he could not hear the cries of people because iniquities had separated them from their God, it is there that we find in Isaiah 59, verse 8, it says the way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have, they have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. And we can't conjure up a peace that would ever satisfy our hearts. The world can only offer bits and pieces. Only Christ can give true peace. So the people rejected Pilate's offer of a substitute for Jesus. But the fact is, and please understand what I'm saying here, the Father twisted the world's choice and made his only begotten Son the only substitute for every man. It had to be this way because that's why Jesus came to this earth to begin with. He came to be the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He came to be the only and ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He came to do what none of us could ever do. He came to do what no bulls or the blood of any bull or goat could ever do. Only Jesus could do this. And he even came for those who re- who were rejecting him in this horrifying scenario. He came for them. And it reminds us when we read in Romans 5, verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It has never been God looking down on us, waiting for us to get better, waiting for us to be good, waiting for us to finally get it and, and, and let our good outweigh our bad, right? Because a lot of people think that that's what God looks for. He already knows what we are. We're sinners, separated from God at birth. So understand what Paul says when he says God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we were sinners, yet because of his great mercy and his love and his grace, he sends his only begotten son to die for us. And by the way, if you think that there's a little bit of good in any of us, I got to I got to share this quote really quickly, but I I, I heard Joe Osteen uh, uh, the other day say that uh, he's been you know he's been around a long time he's you know and he says in all the time I've been around I've come to the conclusion that ninety nine point uh, nine percent of people are good. What? Doesn't he open his Bible and read Genesis chapter six verse five? that the heart of man was wicked? Jeremiah 17 verse 9, that the heart of man is desperately wicked? Oh no, but 99% of people are essentially good. That goes against the grain of what the Bible says. I don't care how nice a smile is. That's unbiblical and it's heresy. When are people gonna wake up and quit lining pockets of these people that don't know anything? Calm down, count to ten. First Peter chapter 3 verse 18, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, quickened by the Spirit. All that said, this brings us to the fourth action or move taken by Pontius Pilate. And once again, now it's toward Jesus again. And this is our text he had him scourged the very same person who said I find in him no fault at all he has Jesus scourged then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him and, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe and said hail king of the Jews and they smote him with their hands struck him This passage can only add shame upon shame to Pilate. You know, no one likes to gamble and lose. And this became Pilate's pattern with the religious authorities. So he resorted, he resorted to a a Roman tactic and that for possible, for possibly two reasons he resorted to a Roman tactic for possibly two reasons first the tactic the tactic was he had Jesus scourged I'll, I'll explain scourging in a second the typical reason for this to scourge someone who is a prisoner was to get a helpless man who was not protected by powerful friends or even by the Roman citizenry, to open up and say something that could eventually be used against him. It was just putting the screws to somebody, you know, to say, hey, you know, you, you know we're gonna torture you until you talk, until you confess. So he does this to Jesus. The typical reason for this, as I said, was to get him to say something. I mean, that would at least make Pilate feel somewhat justified if Jesus would just confess to anything. But the scourging now, the scourging itself was a terrible ordeal, and it was fatal, by the way, to many. This is what they would do. This is is how they scourged people. They would fasten a prisoner to a post. A soldier would then take a whip with several leather thongs onto which they wove pieces of metal and bone at the end of those leather strips. The soldier would then bring the whip down with all the force of his arm across the victim's back. Now usually, the first blow would knock all the breath out of the body. The second blow would open up the skin, and as the punishment continued, his flesh was ripped from his own bone. Oftentimes, vital organs were exposed, and obviously, many died beneath this scourge. Those who happened to survive were maimed for life. Quite a tactic, isn't it? Sometimes after a person would recover from losing his breath and still having his flesh ripped, they would immediately say something anything to have them stop you know it says quite a bit about Jesus and his magnificent uh, physique (laughs) had to have had it when you think about it. it says quite a bit about his physique that he survived this scourging but that wasn't everything of note There wasn't a word of complaint from our Savior's lips. That's what we need to understand here. There wasn't a word of complaint from Jesus' lips through the whole process. And because of this, not a word from the heartless soldier that could be used as an excuse to change the verdict. You know, they said, Well, did he say anything? He didn't say a thing. Nothing can change. Eventually, they had to stop. But it didn't end there. Jesus went from the scourging to the scoffing. Now, you have to understand, there was not a, 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 a medical or EMT you know, on the side there you know, after Jesus got beat, you know, they'll go over there and tend to his wounds. They, they didn't have that. He's a bloody mess on his back. And immediately, immediately, the soldiers who were more than likely ordered to provoke Jesus to some hostile remark against Rome and hand Pilate his justification, they began to do what they are doing in verses 2 and 3. They, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they put a robe on him, and they started mocking him, saying, Hail, the King of the Jews. brings to mind the suffering of the Messiah As as predicted and prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb so he opened not his mouth Now, I had mentioned earlier that Pilate may have used this tactic for two possible reasons. The first we've already talked about, for Jesus to say something to incriminate himself. But the second possible reason, and please understand, it's a possible reason. The second possible reason could be as a ploy for sympathy. A ploy for sympathy. Because the crowd, listen. listen, The crowd had had been crying, crucify him, crucify him. Even up to this point, as Mark's gospel records of this very same time frame. Notice Mark 15 verses 11 through 14. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. The chief priests were telling the people what to shout. Kind of reminds me of a certain political party that are, have leaders that are telling their people to go and cause all kinds of destruction and, 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 and you know, chaos. Crazy, isn't it? And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What, what will ye that I, that I should do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? Wow, that, now that's a little different from what he had said before when he said, listen, you know, what, what do you want me to do with the king, your king? Here he says pretty much the same thing except whom you call the king of the Jews. Wow, boy, he's trying everything with that title. What did they do? They cried out all the more. They cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly. Notice they didn't give an answer. They just said, crucify him. We've made up our minds. But what about Pilate? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, The people would be pacified and conciliated if Jesus were scourged. I mean, let's face it what what man could witness a scourging of a prisoner and still want them crucified? I mean, this guy isn't a murderer, he's not a thief, he's not an insurrectionist like, like Barabbas is. So we punish him and we punish him hard. Who could see that and then all of a sudden keep saying crucify him? Okay, that's enough. Now just run him out of our city, run him out of our life, get him out of here. Was this what Pilate was expecting? That may have been his thinking, but I have to tell you this, no man was pacified no one was satisfied with what they saw there was no one in the crowd willing to say enough is enough. When it came to Jesus maybe for someone else but not for Jesus. From the time that stones were lifted up against him stones that never landed on him because it wasn't yet time to the slap in the Savior's face before Annas, the previous high priest, to being spit upon and beaten before Caiaphas and the council, to the scourging and the incessant beatings by the Roman soldiers as they mocked him and beat his covered face and head with a rod. See, they could beat his face with their hands, but they, they, they had to use a reed or a rod of some sort to hit him on the head with with those thorns digging deeper into his skull. Mocking him, playing games with him. Putting a cover over his head and saying, who is it that hit you? You're the son of God. You're the king of the Jews. They played games with the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now please listen to me. Please listen. How can we not ponder and consider how much Jesus suffered even before the cross itself? And again, for you and for me, He went as a lamb to the slaughter. Every strike, every smiting of the hand, every thrust of the whip for you and for me. How can we not ponder that, that it was done for us. We kind of homogenize the crucifixion, the cross, and not realize what a bloody mess it was before Jesus went. to have our sins nailed on that cross. Certainly the demonic forces of hell were having a heyday in Pilate's praetorium and courtyard. But I think it would always be good to remember that it was sin that brought thorns, and thistles into the world that the Lord had created as good, it was sin that brought him in. Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also, and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return." We kind of think we've, we've turned the corner on that particular thought about not eating in sorrow all the days of our lives. We work hard, but who sweats anymore? Everything is so conveniently provided for us. The problem is that The description is still that of those who live under heaven. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about being under heaven as being living on this earth without God, without God. We live, we die. We don't take anything with us when we go. We sometimes leave stuff for the people you know, they're following us in life, our family or whatever. But the biggest difference, of course, is that though we all have to work and though we all have to sweat a little bit to do what we need to do, those of us who have found peace and salvation in Jesus Christ, when we eat today, we eat with joy we eat with gladness. Because we recognize that Jesus came to die on our behalf for the sins that took place on that day when man disobeyed God. And Christ has already accomplished what needed to be accomplished for us. Man can only think that they live and they die, and who knows what's beyond. But Jesus made it clear what is beyond. For those who come to know him, for those who believe and trust in him, for those who believe and and obey the word of God and the commandments of God, he says life everlasting. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said when he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. What a promise that is. And he makes the promise before he dies, before he goes to the cross, before he's beaten. But he promises that he will rise again. That's our hope. His resurrection is our hope for our resurrection. If you're getting baptized today, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Out there at, at the Baptist, Baptist, baptism site we're going to talk about it because it's important for you to understand why baptism is done why we do it So getting back to where we were, it was only fitting then that the Creator would wear a crown of thorns as he bore the sins of the world on the cross. Likewise, think about this, the very metals that he created and placed in the ground of the earth were now to be used to make the nails that would be pounded into his hands and his feet in hatred and rejection, and yet they were the nails that would attach the Lamb of God to the instrument of death, the cross upon which the weight of divine judgment would fall upon the sinless Son of God for the sin of the world. What were the end results of such disdain and disparagement? What were the end results? In Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says of Jesus because this is who it's pointing to. It says of him as many were astonished at thee which means they were astonished they were amazed shocked if you will as many were astonished at thee his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men in other words he was unrecognizable before he went to the cross before he was nailed to the tree. He was unrecognizable. And the final condemnation of Jesus by Pilate now coincides with his fifth action, his fifth move, which was toward the people again. Verses 4 through 6, Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you. Now this this you have to understand. It's as if Pilate has come out before them to say, I want to present to you someone. I want them to come forth out of the, the wings of the stage. He says, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. What you then will see is the work of your own making. And then came forth Jesus. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, which by now I'm sure was soaked in his blood. Pilate said, saith unto them, Ece homo, ecce homo, Latin, behold the man, behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. As ruthless. As Pilate was historically when it came to the Jews, who he truly despised, he nonetheless settled for compromise. He desperately wanted the crowd to pity Jesus, if in fact this was a ploy, the scourging was a ploy to, you know, to get some sympathy from them. He desperately wanted the crowd to pity Jesus when they saw him so badly beaten, so badly battered, bloodied, and broken. But compromise, by the way, <coughs> compromise is not the way of Jesus. Compromise is not the way of Jesus. We, listen, we either cry, crucify him, or we cry, crown him. I would hope and pray you will, crown, you will cry, crown him. Crown him, Lord of all. Crown him the king of kings. So we either cry out, crucify him, or we cry out, crown him. There's no middle ground here. There's no middle ground. Luke records an incident when Jesus was casting out a demon and the Pharisees actually he began to blaspheme jesus it's in luke chapter 11 and, and and let me go through this very quickly but in verses 14 and following it says that he was casting out a devil and it was dumb uh, yeah i know that you mostly think that devils are dumb but uh, you know uh you know and others who follow them. Uh, but dumb here of course means that the the, the person that had this demon was um uh, couldn't speak held his tongue So he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. I mean, all of a sudden, they were astonished at the very fact that the person who could, could not speak at all was now speaking. But some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Well, this, of course, is blasphemy, because they're speaking of the Son of God. They're speaking of the Messiah of Israel. They're speaking of the one who has the power to do these things, and yet they're calling him the devil. Or at least doing it under the power of the devil. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. So they wanted a sign from him, but they only wanted to test him and tempt him. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. It's brought to complete emptiness. And a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I, be, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? And therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed... Keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. And notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Do you know what this is? This is a statement that is absolute. It is an absolute statement. It is speaking of an absolute. The absolute is that he that is not with Christ is against Christ. There's nothing in between. You can have good thoughts of Jesus. Well, I believe, you know, that Jesus is nice and we should learn some of the nice things that he taught when he was around. But I don't believe him as the son of God. You know, I don't believe, you know, that, all that stuff and, and whatnot. No, no, no. Either he is who he is or he's not. And you will be responsible for your verdict. And he that gathereth not with me scatters. But the absolute aspect of this doesn't begin with Jesus. It goes all the way back to the law. It all goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. And you should read all of this chapter here because it speaks of of these blessings and curses. But but here it says, I call heaven, God, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death and death blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that that both thou and thy seed may live." We are called to choose life. Life in the very fact that our God, when He created the heavens and the earth, created things and gave life to them. It is the enemy who is about death. It is the enemy who is about destruction. It is the enemy who is about hatred, it is the enemy who is about deception, God is all about truth, that's an absolute, his truth is absolute, his love is absolute, his grace and his mercy is absolute, his character is absolute, he never changes. i got a a little time i got to go on because I could go on and on on that one. But getting back to Pilate, he thought that by appealing to the Jews' sense of justice, I guess he thought they had a sense of justice because they weren't doing anything at all of what they had been required by the prophet Micah or by God in the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, when it says there, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. They've broken everything in that in their trial against Jesus. But he thought that by appealing to their sense of justice that they would be satisfied with what had been done to Jesus. But the appeal fell on deaf ears. <clears throat> they weren't interested in justice at all. All they wanted was a quick conviction and a speedy death sentence. Talk about something backfiring. Pilate had proclaimed Jesus innocent. And the backfiring came on, you know, on everything that Pilate tried to do. He proclaimed Jesus innocent, yet he had him scourged. He has done nothing wrong, beat him. Does it make any sense to any of you? He then allowed Jesus to be brutalized by the soldiers. <clears throat> oh, but he's innocent. I find no fault in him at all. You know, that's just the way people are thinking today. And then he parades before the people evidence of his own cowardice. He places Jesus in front of the people wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and they become more furious. So Pilate then makes that statement from which he's become famous or infamous, if you will, Eche homo, behold the man, the words alone carry the idea of this. Think about this for just a moment. The idea of this phrase, behold the man, is, it has the idea of saying, look at this poor man. Hasn't he suffered enough? Just take pity on him and release him. Now we would think that if any crowd should have been moved with pity, it would have been those who who waited on Pilate, because there isn't a nation on earth that has suffered more than the Jewish people. And yet, here was one of their own, suffering unjustly at the hands of their enemies, the Romans, and yet they did not repent or even show the slightest touch of pity. All that being said, let me just say that we need to remember this one thing. No one is saved by feeling pity for Jesus. That's not what this message is about. No one is saved by feeling pity for Jesus. We are saved by repenting of our sins and believing and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our sinless substitute on the cross. But understand that it isn't wrong to contemplate or to meditate on the cross and on his sufferings for us. But we are not simply to contemplate the cross, we are to carry it. We are to carry our own cross and follow Jesus. Now I want to leave you with two passages of scripture very quickly, Romans chapter 10 and Luke chapter nine. Not the whole passage, or not the whole chapters, but in Romans chapter 10, to give you an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it is that saves us. Paul said it very clearly in Romans 10 verses 8-13, through 13, but what saith it? The, the, the word is nigh unto thee, near unto thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him should not be ashamed, or shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the the Greek or the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you are getting baptized today, you need to make sure that that's what's happened in your life. That you have confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead. And then lastly, to cover the issue of not contemplating the cross, but carrying it, it was Jesus himself who said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Once we have come to the understanding of our salvation in Jesus Christ, this is what we are now to do. We are to die to ourselves, to let Christ live in us. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me And the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me And he gave himself for me. He loves you and he gave himself for you. Gave himself up to the scourger's whip. He gave himself up to the slaps of the soldiers. He gave himself up to the cries of crucify him. He gave himself up so that he could die for us. And in three days rise again. How can our hearts not be changed in knowing these things?